Welcome to the EMSO Talks podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of EMSO Talks. My name is Ivailo Vasilinov. I am Chief Strategist here at EMSO, and this is part two of my conversation with Ben Serrano, our Senior Portfolio Manager, as we look at the market implications and fundamental outlook for 2023 in selected countries across EM Asia. When it comes to the 2023 outlook for EM Asia, there really is only one place to start, and that is, of course, China. Um, after a couple of false dawns, we are finally starting to see momentum build behind the idea that uh, the authorities are about to give the green light for reopening the economy. And uh, whilst these latest signals have been encouraging, we retain a somewhat cautious view, I would say, going into next year. First, because the number of cases continues to spike. This is the first time China is really having to face such an explosion of Omicron cases. And perhaps, given low inoculation levels, the relatively low um, acquired immunity within the population is a factor that increases these uh, short-term risks. Um, If we continue to see very large increases in cases, that in itself could be enough to scare the Chinese authorities into slowing the reopening efforts. But even if we do not see further huge increases from here, it could be the case that uh, what we have seen to date is already enough to create a problem in the coming weeks. So another reason to be cautious, we think, uh, is that uh, we simply do not know the capability of the Chinese health system to deal with any meaningful spikes in cases. Uh, The system has simply not been tested yet. I think it's worth bearing these risks in mind when thinking about the likely speed and uniformity of further measures uh, towards reopening. It is true, however, that notwithstanding the remaining uncertainties around the path, the final destination seems to be pretty clear. The Chinese authorities finally seem to be transitioning away from zero COVID towards something like dynamic zero COVID, where policies are being recalibrated uh, towards much less aggressive, more targeted responses to potential further spikes in cases. So I would summarize our baseline scenario as uh, cautiously optimistic, envisaging further reopening by the middle of next year, but perhaps not as rapidly as some of the recent optimistic narratives in the market. It's also, of course, uh, other economic uh, problems that we've had to digest over the last few years. Um, I would say uh, perhaps the sort of uh, elephant in the room remains the troublesome real estate sector. You know, that's something that um, has not been resolved. Um, We had a lot of fanfare once again back in in November when the government announced uh, the latest efforts to stabilize the sector. Uh, But, uh, you know, we know that uh, out of the 16 measures that were announced uh, uh, in, in November, only two were actually new. The rest was uh, more or less uh, recycled measures from sort of previous efforts that we've seen trickling through over the course of the of the whole year. Um, and if anything, you know, if previous epi- episodes are anything to go by, um, the pattern is once again likely to be uh, somewhat disappointing when um, when you sort of comes to the execution of some of these uh, restructuring uh, efforts and measures. Um, we are seeing um, a lot of uh, a lot of these targets not being met necessarily, um, and I guess a lot of that is due to competing um, interests. You know, for example, it's all very well urging banks and state-owned enterprises to lend to the real estate sector, uh, but in ma- many cases uh, there remains a high degree of l- reluctance uh, because lenders simply don't want to risk uh, further losses on their loans. Um, so I would expect that effort to also be problematic. I think overall the conclusion there should be that the government is essentially aiming to to set a floor for potential further losses in the sector, uh, but not necessarily look to turn the sector around. I think that's probably the best way to think about it. Uh, so where does that leave us on China? I think um, essentially um, we should see high growth in 2023. Um, I think we'll see a, a degree of recovery on the back of uh, some of these supportive measures and, and reopening efforts, clearly. 
but I don't expect uh, to see a, a massive impulse for, 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 for the rest of the global economy, in particular for emerging markets. Um, I imagine the risks to consensus forecasts for China uh, Chinese growth uh, next year, which are still with a sort of high 4% handle, uh, probably skewed to the downside still. We probably have more to adjust there. Uh, and maybe even more importantly, um, going forward, I think, you know, the market is still not um, realized that um, there's a meaningful risk that we have to operate in a world where potential growth in China is uh, probably as low as 3%, maybe even lower. Um, and that has all sorts of uh, difficult uh, implications for, for a number of uh, uh, emerging markets across the world. Um, and we simply don't seem to be pricing this. So um, I would sort of caution, I guess, being overly optimistic, thinking that uh, the zero COVID story in China is over, reopening is behind the corner, uh, and that implies essentially much faster growth from here. Uh, but again, I mean, it's been an interesting um, asset class to, to trade and an interesting market to trade. And I'd be uh, interested to know uh, how you see um, the opportunities in China, if any, uh, in 2023, Ben. Yeah, I think that it's, um, it's, it's another uh, tr- tricky one, right? Um, as you say, it's probably going to be growing, you know, maybe not the, the high fours, but, 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 but uh, you know, high threes, low fours. Uh, and that's a meaningful improvement from what uh, what growth was uh, this year, right? So on the one hand, it's uh, it's doing better on the growth front, but it still feels a little bit recessionary. So you know that presents a problem for rates, right? Should they be uh, responding to uh, the improved growth or the or, or the or the recessionary um, sensation, right? And and I'm not sure which one which one will will prevail, right? I I, I suspect that. Uh, Given where we're starting from uh, in rates, with five-year rates at uh, between, you know, two point seven and uh, and two point eight percent, that we probably see a little bit more uh, upside uh, to, to to rates. Uh, why is that? It's not necessarily driven by inflation because this is still you know a very low uh, inflation uh, zone. Um, you know, inflation uh, in China hasn't really uh, ha- hasn't seen any of the uh, large um, uh, increase uh, increases in the characteristics that we've seen pretty much all around the, the rest of the world, which uh, I think has been certainly very uh, very interesting, uh, and it's unlikely to see them next year. But at the same time, um, we have had over previous three or four years uh, very large inflows gone into China government bonds, uh, which drove yields from sort of four and a half percent down to two and a half percent. And now we have much larger foreign investment or foreign interest in, in, in these markets, but it yields that are materially lower. And, and at the same time, the rest of the, uh, if you like, mainstream emerging market space has seen interest rates go from, you know, four percent, perhaps on average up to uh, eight or nine percent uh, and double digits in some places like Brazil or South Africa. Um, and, uh, and and they've experienced outflows while China, China's experienced inflows. So I think that just from, um, if you like, a rotational perspective, I could see uh, rates in, in China uh, ticking uh, a little higher. And I think that that positioning has got, um, you know, two, two uh, distinct advantages uh, to it. So the first is, as I said, uh, just from this rotational perspective, that now uh, that uh, asset group has, uh, has, has, has seen its rally. Um, and, uh, and 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 is unlikely to see higher valuations, uh, or um, in in the event that actually growth surprises to the upside, then we should see upward pressure uh, on on rates as well. Uh, so I think you have that optionality uh, quite nicely from uh, from, from paying China rates positioning. Um, the currency is uh, is 
it's quite tricky. Everything's quite tricky. But the currency is also quite tricky because, yeah, I, I think that the, the conventional wisdom would be that as we see the reopening, then, you know, we should have uh, a lot of inflow coming back, coming back into China. Um, you know, there's been pent up demand, uh, investment demand, uh, and, uh, and we should see that flow come in uh, and potentially strengthen the currency. Now, that, that might well, we've actually seen that already, right? I mean, dollar China got up to uh, 7.4 uh, and now it's trading back below 7. Um, but I think as the reopening takes hold, there's also, you know, huge pent up uh, domestic demand within the country to be uh, either traveling, um, which, uh, which has been something that's been un unavailable for the past three years, right? Or, or just the general, um, you know, uh, capital flight and leakage that we've, that's also been characteristic uh, in China over over many previous years, so you know, I think at uh, a level sub seven, um, there could easily be a lot of domestic demand for dollars. So the reopening is not necessarily uh, dollar China uh, lower, uh, but I do think that uh, it still probably is biased to be um, Chinese rates higher. Um, so that that would be my outlook for, uh, for 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 China. Certainly, again, you know, it's difficult to. Uh, it's difficult to have a view for the entirety of 2023, but certainly as we come into the year uh, and into uh, this March-April period, where uh, I think that the, uh, the, the 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 investing community is generally of the view that that's when the bulk of the reopening is really going to manifest itself in the economy, that uh, that the the, the, pay the pay trade could certainly uh, uh, do fairly well uh, during that period of time. Absolutely. I mean, I think um, it's it's interesting to sort of keep this in mind when, when thinking about the region in general, uh, because um, by far the number one sort of driving force in, in EM Asia uh, for 2023 is expected to be uh, the reopening of the Chinese economy. But there are also, of course, very important idiosyncratic factors um, affecting some of these um, other countries that will be uh, relatively uncorrelated to the reopening trade. And, um, you know, when you look at, for example, the growth differential, which, of course, empirically tends to be the biggest driver for capital inflows into emerging markets, um, you know, there are still economies growing very robustly in the region, uh, even though China is no longer among them. Uh, you have the likes of India, for example, where you know, we were looking at growth almost 9% expected for this year, you know, some moderation to around 7% in 2023, but still uh, very, very strong. Um, you know, Indonesia is another example, we have, um, you know, 5.5% perhaps, uh, or even higher this year, maybe slight moderation next year, but um, still very sort of healthy growth rates. Uh, but I think the structure of, of growth is very important. And again, there are idiosyncratic factors. And as it happens, actually, these two countries also have their own elections, not next year, but in uh, 2024. Uh, but already we're seeing the impact of these upcoming elections uh, on, on policies. And I think uh, that will be also a very important differentiating, differentiating factor. So, for example, in, in, in India's case, you know, we do have uh, the upcoming budget now in February 23 uh, being the last one, the last full budget before the uh, general election in uh, mid-24. Um, and very little is expected from the government in terms of uh, consolidation. Maybe we see some rationalization of the subsidy bill, but uh, uh, there are no signs that they're going to go for any major corrections. Um, and if you look at the uh, consolidated uh, general government budget deficit, you know, that's almost 9% of GDP uh, for, for next year. So, you know, perhaps 6.5% of the central government level, but uh, very, very elevated levels. 
Um, so the compositional growth is very much uh, in India is very much driven by domestic demand, uh, which in turn seems to be generating some uh, risks to, to, to inflation as well. Inflation is likely to peak, but in terms of the disinflation process, that's unlikely to be fast or, or aggressive. Uh, and the central bank will have to take that into account. Um, and I think, um, you know, we're also seeing the politics uh, affect not just the outlook for, for fiscal policy, but also for the currency. Uh, we, we have... Um, this interesting public discourse in India where, uh, on the one hand, the authorities are very likely to look to replenish some of their um, FX reserves after the RBI lost uh, almost $110 billion uh, worth of FX reserves, uh, propping up the rupee uh, in the year to September. Uh, on the other hand, of course, uh, we also have this uh, narrative that uh, essentially currency weakness is a, is a sign of uh, more generalized economic weakness. Uh, and as such, uh, you know, the, current, the government is likely to continue to pressure the central bank to protect the currency from, from depreciation. So I think all of that kind of gives you uh, somewhat of a uh, you know, range-bound dollar INR outlook. Uh, maybe, you know, the sort of current range 79 to 83 uh, is likely to hold. Uh, but the composition of growth going forward because of this uh, fiscal largesse going to the elections, I think is going to be troublesome and not necessarily good for risk premium in general when it comes to India. Um, when it comes to Indonesia, I think it's it's almost the, the opposite outlook because, um, uh, you know, they also have elections coming up. Uh, Those are uh, supposed to be held in February 24. Uh, if anything, they're actually a lot more contested. You know, in India's case, Basically, Prime Minister Modi's uh, BJP uh, party seems to be in a strong position. Uh, but in Indonesia, um, you have a much more contested election. Uh, the incumbent president, uh, Joko Widodo, uh, basically rejected in 2019 the proposal to amend the constitution. So he will not be running again. He's coming up to the end of his second term. Uh, and as he steps down, uh, his proposed successor from the Democratic Party, Granjar, is uh, facing very stiff competition, uh, both from uh, Prabowo Subianto from the uh, Jarinder Party, uh, but also from the independent candidate, uh, Agnes. Um, and so elections are, are earlier than in India and they're much more contested. And yet you have a completely different fiscal outlook where consolidation has been much better than expected. Uh, you know, post the pandemic, the deficit has been tightened very uh, meaningfully. It's already on course to maybe compress towards uh, 3% of GDP this year. Um, and also very encouragingly, if you look at the ratio of uh, non-natural resource revenues to GDP, uh, those are rebounding to above pre-COVID levels. So structurally, the, the, the outlook for Indonesia seems to be very sound indeed. Uh, we may even see a sovereign rating upgrade to triple B plus next year, uh, given sort of the positive medium term structural story. Uh, so despite some sort of cyclical challenges near term under the capital account, I think um, overall the Indonesian sort of macro story um, is, is much more robust. You know, you have export diversification um, and that's likely to be rewarded by the market at some stage. So uh, again, very idiosyncratic factors in many cases driven by the politics, uh, but general, you know, different differentiated approaches from the governments uh, to fiscal policy, I think will yield uh, differentiated results when it comes to, to, to their respective assets. Um, do you see any interesting opportunities in, in either of those two stories for next year? No, look, I, I, I love the way that you, uh, you categorize the two stories. I really see nothing, um, you know, exciting uh, for, for, for a positioning perspective in the India story. Actually, I find it, you know, quite, um, quite, quite worrisome. I mean, there's no rate further rate hikes uh, priced in the curve. Um, you know, on the one hand, uh, that's, that's very much a case of, 
uh, inflation probably having peaked, uh, but it doesn't really take into account any of the uh, fiscal um, risks or the, or, you know, pr- provide any, uh, any any premium for any further fiscal deterioration. Or actually, with the fiscal deficit at or around ten percent, you know, it's not that we need to be rewarded or or paid for any uh, for protected for any further deterioration you know we need to be picking up some uh some discount for you know the the prevailing poor um set of fundamentals that we're presented with right now and i don't see uh that as available uh in in the curve whatsoever um so i i, I don't really like uh certainly on the long side uh the india um story uh at, at all uh indonesia on the other hand i think is much more attractive um by the way, it is actually the other country in, in our space that is uh, at or around or, in fact, likely to be slightly below uh, its inflation target for, uh, for, for 2023. Um, so it shares that in common with, uh, with South Africa. But the fiscal side of the story is much, much better. Um, you know, the fiscal balance is, uh, is close to zero. Uh, it has no meaningful uh, current account um, imbalances uh, whatsoever. Um, now, uh, it has escaped on certainly on the rate side uh, a lot of the sell-off that we've seen in other um, EM local uh, local markets, largely because it's managed to uh, contain inflation over the course of the year. But it hasn't stopped uh, quite a large amount of um, uh, of foreign outflow for, from the market. I, I think that's a legacy of the fact that uh, in previous emerging market um, week periods, Indonesia has uh, has performed very poorly. Um, it's a market that has uh, been susceptible to, to bouts of uh, very poor liquidity, uh, and I think that it has uh, fallen victim to, um, you know, the the idea of uh, sell first and ask questions later. Um, and we've seen uh, so we've seen very low involvement in in the rate space, um, but uh, over the course of the year, uh, we've actually seen the currency. Uh, do fairly poorly and and at this point in the year compared to some other uh, em currencies indo finds itself uh, one of the weakest points of the year so all all told uh, i actually think that starts to point to um you know uh, either in absolute terms or certainly in relative terms uh, quite uh, a, an interesting opportunity in indo assets uh, as uh, on the long side as uh, as we move into 2023 so i think the bonds have certainly got some um some some attractiveness to them, uh, and um, certainly uh, from a positioning perspective, we'll be looking to focus uh, more uh, in Indonesia and very little interest to uh, to be doing anything uh, in India um, over the course of the com- months to come. Thanks, Ben. I think in general, um, all these idiosyncratic factors will be very important. But of course, we also have to make uh, an allowance for uh, various types of black swan events. Of course, uh, in 2022, this was clearly the Russia-Ukraine war and all the uh, associated impact that it's had around the world. Um, I think, um, you know, just very quickly on on Ukraine, our view is that, um, you know, this conflict is here to stay. Uh, there's clearly uh, seems to be no path to Russian victory uh, at present. Uh, and, you know, the Russian forces uh, seem to have uh, overextended themselves. Uh, but at the same time, um, also, it's uh, it's very unlikely that uh, Moscow will go to the negotiating table unless they can eke out something that uh, resembles a victory, at least that can be spun into a victory. Um, so from that perspective, uh, the two sides remain very far apart. And uh, we think, you know, negotiations are unlikely. 
but um, you know this conflict has already had a massive impact on on energy security and various other factors. Uh, would you see? It, would you expect this to be the the main black swan event uh, for for next year? What other risks do you think uh, could affect the investor sentiment towards EM? So uh, I think there are unfortunately a number of things that we need to worry about. Um, I'm not sure they are their, their base case, obviously, um, but uh, but they're certainly uh, of, of of significant concern. Uh, I think there's a growing view that um, you know the damage that uh, that Russia can wreak upon Europe is, uh, is has largely been done, uh, and I'm not sure that that is. Uh, is is really a, is is really right. Uh, I think that there are still more levers that uh, that can be pulled. Um, you know, I think that uh, much has been made of Europe's uh, ability to uh, refill its uh, LNG storage and kind of get in front of this um, LNG uh, and gas shortage that uh, that we were so worried about um, when uh, you know the the, the pipelines uh, got shut down or you know. Um, uh, and, and also some of the uh, uh, attacks uh, on some of those pipelines that we saw that, that really made us worry, right? I think that there are still other pipelines uh, that could um, see flow reduced uh, in, into Europe, um, and that could potentially worsen the gas position um, when some of the storage is, uh, is is depleted as we go through the cold winter months and as we move into uh, in, into next year. Uh, I think that it also uh, bears mentioning that... Um, during the COVID years, uh, China's uh, demand for LNG has been greatly reduced. Uh, and this has also been the main source of supply that, uh, that Europe has been able to pick up uh, in order to refill those, those storage tanks. And I think that when China more um, uh, deliberately comes back on stream and, you know, whether or not you think that Q1 is going to be tricky uh, for them or, or, or not, uh, you know, there's no doubt that uh, they will uh, come back to um, a, a, a more normal speed, uh, and that's going to demand a lot of uh, a lot of LNG, right? And so that's going to put them in direct competition with uh, with with the likes of Europe. And so I think that you know a, a gas prices in Europe are actually already fivefold what they were pre-pandemic, right? So there's been very lasting damage. So even though we saw gas prices shoot up all the way to you know 350 uh, euros, that 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 that. Uh, conceals the fact that pre-2020, pre so in 2019 and the years before, uh, you know, that gas price was more in the 20 to 40 range. Uh, and now today we're at around 135. So um, I think that we need to keep one eye open that that can still be squeezed to the upside. Uh, and I think that some of the alternatives that Europe's relying on, um, the, the move uh, to use more nuclear um, or, or restart some of these nuclear projects, right? Also, you know, needs to be uh, concerned with uh, watch with some concern, right? France has got very high dependency on uh, on, on on nuclear power and has very little um, access to its own uranium. So, you know, these are things which I think that we need to um, keep in the back of our, our mind. They are uh, potential uh, black swan events, um, but perhaps with. Uh, uh, a, a bit more higher possibility of uh, of, of, of impacting the market than than, than normal. So um, I'm certainly uh, worried uh, on 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 a number of those fronts. And you know, again, not to go down another another rabbit hole of, uh, of of insecurities for next year. But I think that you know we we forget that so much of our fertilizer 
um, comes from uh, Russia and Belarus. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, this has been uh, greatly declined. Um, I don't think that we know exactly what that's going to mean for uh, crop yields as we move into next year and years beyond. Uh, but I, I certainly don't see it as generating a positive uh, surprise. And so I, I think that the pressure on uh, food prices and also energy prices is necessarily uh, dissipating um, in, in, in the rate that we expect. So, you know, I think that we can see with some decent visibility uh, the trajectory of inflation over, uh, you know, the months to come. Uh, but I, I don't really... Uh, I, I think that it's still cloudy um, as we uh, as we move into the middle and the end of next year. Uh, and, and while it might not be the base case um, that uh, that um, well, far from the base case, while it might not be any on anybody's anybody's radar that there's a possibility that inflation rates are, uh, are higher at, at the end of next year, uh, I think that we have to have. Uh, a decent amount of uh, probability attributed to the fact that they're going to be uh, materially higher than target uh, by the time we get to the end of 2023. Thank you very much, Ben. It's good to hear our resident pessimist does not disappoint. We can always count on you to identify the dangers lurking under the surface. Um, Look, I mean, I fully agree that 2023 is likely to be another challenging year with plenty of potential for black swan events. But I personally also see that there's uh, you know, plenty of opportunity for uh, EM investors uh, related mainly to the differentiation theme that we identified with you at the beginning of part one of our conversation. Uh, in my view, the complicated external backdrop that we discussed uh, implies the competition for capital flows within EM and to EM is only going to intensify next year. And uh, that makes it all the more important uh, to have a solid understanding of the idiosyncratic fundamentals, whether it's the political cycles or the trends in macroeconomic uh, fundamentals. You know, which economies are going to be doing the right things when it comes to structural reforms, implementing prudent fiscal policies, engineering improvements in their basic balances and reducing their external vulnerabilities. Um, All of this is likely to be crucial for identifying the relative winners and losers. It is certainly shaping up to be another very interesting year for EM, that's, that's for sure. With that, I want to thank you again very much, Ben, for your illuminating thoughts. And I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. Should you have any follow-up questions, please do not hesitate to reach out to our lovely Investor Relations team. And in the meantime, we wish you and your loved ones all the very best for the festive season. And we look forward to connecting again in the new year. Thank you.